It's not just the, the, big, the big players on the world stage, but he is interested in absolutely everyone and their everyday lives, while politicians and generals will scheme and plan and wage war. Now, if you're to look around the globe at this point in time, about 1200 BC, you think about a small family relocating 50 miles around the coastline of the Dead Sea wouldn't maybe be the most important thing. You think there's other issues you might want to focus on. This is the time when the Bronze Era is just finishing. And so you have the Golden Age of Greece coming into play with the occupation of Macedonia. And so, I mean, you want to talk about Greece and the role they play in ancient history. Maybe focus there. Or, or, or perhaps we could talk about the era of, you know, this is the time of the Trojan Horse. Remember? Queen Helen, or who, whose face launched what? A thousand ships. And Achilles and all these guys. They were on the, the, the earth at roughly the same time here as Ruth and Naomi. It's also the time of the Mayans in Central America and their incredible culture. Or in China, the first great dynasty of China, the Shang dynasty, is coming to an end. And there's, there's turmoil in, in one of a, a very significant country in the world. So why do we have a story about a couple of widows in a small, unimportant part of the world? Why does God care so much about three ladies in a place that he calls his wash pot in Psalm 60? Well, Christmas time, Christmas story, who's going to be born in Bethlehem? Jesus. Why is he going to be born there? Because it's the city of David. Why is it the city of David? Because David was born there. Why was David born there? Because his grandfather Obed was born there. And why was Obed born there? Because his mother, Ruth, an outsider, found a redeemer, found second chance, found love in a man named Boaz from the line of Judah. And she moved there to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Zechariah 4 It says, do not despise the day of small beginnings. And what we have in this chapter and in the book of Ruth is the small beginning. And it's beautiful. These ladies have no idea what's going to come, but God does. Conversations, decisions that we will be looking at tonight may seem small compared to some of the other things going on in the world at this time. And yet it's one of the most significant things that happen. Because it leads to Jesus. It leads to Bethlehem. It leads to Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought about how important your decisions are. Um, certainly TV programs and movies, you know, sometimes uh, will we'll sort of play, says, oh, you know, if, if one decision changed slightly, the whole thing would be different. Everything would have changed. Little choices can make a big difference whether it is in the life of your family, um, perhaps even in the life of our nation. Our vote on Thursday for council elections, ah, who really cares? What are they going to do anyway? They've got no funds, they've got no power, they've got no influence. Might make a difference. Might. 
Every vote we cast makes a difference. Small decisions make big differences. And we looked at this morning at a choice that was made to leave Bethlehem for Moab. A bad choice, and it was a costly choice. You can't just run away from your problems. You can't just run away hoping that that's going to fix everything. But now I want to have a look at these three women that we're left with individually and show you that you can't hide from your problems either. So let's, let's read. Uh, verse 6. Then she, Naomi, rose with her daughter-in-laws and returned from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So remember, the fa- there was a famine that made them leave. And it's about 10 years later. 10 years is a long time for famine. But now they hear the famine is over. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and she lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. So at this point, Orpah and Ruth are both going to go with Naomi. That's important. Both of them are going to go. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Remember, um, in Jewish tradition, uh, if there was a, a widow left, then what would happen is that the next uh, eligible uh, brother of the deceased would, would marry his sister-in-law so that, um, and sort of keep it in the family and, and, and try and look after each other. So Naomi's basically saying, well, look, listen, Am I going to have more kids and you're going to wait for them? Turn back, my daughters, verse 12. Turn back, my daughters, go your way. I am too old to have a husband. And if I should, if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you wait for them till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter for me to, for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So she's blaming God. She's blaming God for this. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So Naomi hears that God's moving again in Bethlehem, in particular in Israel generally. And she's in the wrong place. God's moving, but she's not there to experience it. All she can do is hear about the blessing. Isn't it really frustrating when you hear God's doing something and you miss out? She's in the wrong place. And so there's miracles happening and there's things that are happening. God's people are being blessed. Naomi should have been there. Naomi should have been part of it and missed out. 
all because of this decision that she had made. There's consequences and she's missing out on God moving now as a result. She wants to be part of the blessing though, but for her to do that, she needs to repent. Repent, of course, be, meaning literally to turn around. She needs to go back. Now here's the thing. So many sermons that I have heard and books that I've read on this chapter will say that this is the perfect picture of repentance. Naomi has realized she's been in the wrong and so she has to literally pick herself up turn around, go back the way that she's came, go back to where she made a mistake and make it right. I mean, that's literally what repentance means. To, to realize we're going the wrong way, to stop, turn and come back. To move away from her sin and back towards God. Isaiah 55 says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The idea of, of repentance. Stop continuing in sin. Stop going the wrong way. When you know it's wrong, stop going that way. Come back, and you'll find that God is willing to pardon abundantly. Naomi was in the wrong place. And to get to the right place, she needs to turn around. But she also needs to confess. That means she has to admit that she's been going the wrong way. And I hear people saying stuff, you know, oh, you know, I've, I've done some terrible things in my time and I'm not sure if God would love me. I'm not sure if God... Normally the advice that you give to people is, right, well, here's the first thing that we need to do. If you see something that you know is wrong and you recognize it as wrong in your life, first thing you need to do is stop doing it. And they say, oh, but Jeff, you know, it's not, just so, it's not just as easy as that. I mean, oh, it's terrible though. Oh, it's, it's really bad. Okay, well, stop doing it then. Stop going to those places. Stop talking to those people. Stop getting involved in these things. Ah, oh, well, you know, I mean, it's so difficult. And what I have come to realize is that we can be sorry for our sin, but not sorry enough to stop. We can be sorry that we have um, been doing wrong. We can feel guilty. We can feel shame. But not enough to turn away. Not enough to repent. We can be sorry, but not sorry enough. You know, they sometimes, you know, you talk to kids and it's like, are you sorry? Or are you sorry you're caught? Paul told the Corinthians that godly sorrow leadeth to what? Repentance. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. In other words, if you are genuinely sorry, if you are genuinely feeling it, it will lead you to repentance. It will make you to stop sinning and will move you away from that sin. Look at the verses in Ruth. Did Naomi repent? Did she express any real sorrow for her sin? I have to say, I don't think I see any of that here. I see that she's angry with God rather than angry at herself for her mistake. I, I, I see that um, you know, she, she gets back to, to Bethlehem. We'll read these verses later on. But she says, call me Mara. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, for God has dealt bitterly with me. In other words, 
he's been, he's been, he's given me tough. He, he's made it tough for me. Does that sound like a, a heart that says, I am the one who's in the wrong? I'm the one who's, who sinned against God? It doesn't sound like a repentant heart to me. It sounds like someone who wants God to apologize to her. And I'm going to suggest that Naomi is no more spiritual at this point, 10 years on, than the woman who willfully went with her husband Elimelech to Moab all those years ago. She's learned nothing in that time. And yes, she goes back to her land, but she's not going back to her Lord. Because she's still motivated by the food. She's still motivated by the material things that we talked about this morning. Not the fellowship of walking with God. Have a look at verses 7 and 8 there. They start to walk then, the three of them. They start walking back. Uh, it's maybe a two, three-day journey, depending on the route that they're taking. 30, 40 miles, again, depending on the route that they're taking. But they start to walk, and then she stops, and she says to both of them, look, girls, go back home. Go back. You're still young enough. You're still attractive enough. You'll have no problem finding husbands again. So go. Go marry your own kind. Go back into your own community. Go back into your own culture. Go back into your own paganism. Go back and start a family. Start a new life. Just go and be happy. Now that doesn't fit for me with a woman who has been repenting and is seeking God's face and God's favor. It's not, it doesn't sound to me like she's heard, God is moving here. Right, well then girls, you just go that way. God's working over here, so you go that way. You go, you go the wrong way. God's over here. You, you stay over there. Doesn't seem right to me. That doesn't fit. Surely the heart of a believer would be the same as Moses. Moses in Numbers 10. He's speaking to his father-in-law, and he says, we are setting out for the place where the Lord has said, I, I'm going to give to you. And then he says, come with us. And we will do good to you. For the Lord has promised good to Israel. Moses' attitude was, listen, God's working over here. You need to come this way. If God's over here. Then, then let, let, let's get moving this way because the blessings here, the, the good stuff's happening over here. You can't stay there. You need to get over here. But Naomi is pushing them away. Away from her home away from where the Lord is working. Just, that's a tough one, isn't it? I'd, I don't know. I hope certainly there would be no one like that in church who would, who would actively go around saying, hey, God, God's working over here. You need to go back the other way. Go and sin some more. But I wonder if we do this passively, where we've stopped saying, you know, come to church. Come, uh, God, God's going to be doing something. God, God's speaking. I want you to hear what God has to say. I want you to hear what the gospel is. I want you to hear what's... Come, come and, and, and hear. Or, or do we just say, ah, oh, sure, I'll, just, I'll see you at some other point. You don't need to come. It's not that big a pressure. Don't worry about coming. question is, why was Naomi thinking like this? Why was she talking like this? Perhaps the idea of walking back into Bethlehem 
this place where she was once so well respected, her family name was, was quite well known, walking in with two Moabite women, women who would not be welcome in Bethlehem because of their culture, because of their background. The fact that all their, her husband and her sons are dead, these three widows, it would be clear that God has punished them. Is it that unreasonable that Naomi doesn't want to go back to Bethlehem with her failures on show for everyone? Because I, I, I can, that resounds with me, that resonates with me a wee bit because I know whenever I fail, the first thing I want to do is, okay, who saw that? Okay, because it's, it's a lot easier when it's just me and God. I don't really like lots of collateral damage. I don't like it when it's out in the open. I don't like it when everyone else knows my weaknesses and knows my failures and knows my mistakes. None of us do. So I can understand this idea of let, let's try and keep it as low-key as possible. Let's not I, I bring more attention to it than we, what we need to. She can't run away from her problems, but maybe she can cover them up. Yet Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, Whoever conceals their transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. We talked about this a wee bit this morning, about being very careful about being around someone who can't admit that they're wrong. If you're going to be one of those people who, who never is going to admit that you're wrong, you're never going to find mercy with God. You're not going to find that grace. You're not going to find that because the relationship with God begins by saying, I've messed up. I've made so many mistakes. I am so far from perfect. And I need forgiveness. I don't think Naomi was repentant. I think she was bitter. And she was not broken. She was bitter. And when you get to verse 13, what sort of attitude is that going to give to Orpah and to Ruth? God's been cruel. Who knows what he's going to do next? Who knows what else is in store for us? He's bitter, not repentant. And yet, balance, counterpoint, Jesus did this a wee bit as well, okay? Jesus did do this a wee bit as well. He didn't make it easy for people to follow him. Remember whenever um, in Matthew 8, someone came to him and says, I'll follow you anywhere you go. And Jesus says, right, well, birds have nests, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You sure you want to follow me? It's not easy. I don't even have a home. I don't have an address. You sure you want to follow me? You want to follow me into that? Matthew 16, he says, If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's not going to be easy following me. You sure you want to follow me? And there was times that people heard what he had to say, got up and left. He never went after them. He wasn't interested in going after them. Or the rich young ruler says, go sell everything you have, then come follow me. Oh no, I don't want to do that. That's fine. Walk away. That's okay. I'm not coming after you. Jesus made it hard for people to follow. 
And some will say, maybe this is what Naomi's trying to do here. She's making it difficult to test them to see if they really genuinely want to come with her. If their heart's in it. Maybe Orpah was glad to have the chance to stay with her own people, her own gods, her own culture, and not relocate to people who would give her abuse. But honestly, I think that's given Naomi more credit than what she deserves. That's not the heart of someone then who goes on in verse 20 to say, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. God has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? That doesn't like someone who's trying to recruit people. (laughs) It doesn't really sound like someone who's on a marketing campaign for God. That's Naomi's attitude. She's trying to hide her sin. She's trying to conceal it. Thinks she's trying to make it look that she's still with God. She's doing the right things, but the heart is still far away. I wonder. I wonder if there's many people in church like that tonight who are doing a pretty good show of making it look like they're close with God. But if we were to judge you where your heart is at, maybe you're a bit further away than what you think. That's Naomi. What about Orpah? Well, let's go back and and, and read this. Uh, Naomi says, turn back, my daughters, go your way. I'm too old to have a husband, Uh, and so on and so forth. Verse 14, they lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and Ruth clung to her. She starts with them on the journey back to Bethlehem. It seems that uh, she, she has wept with them. She has kissed them. There's nothing fake in her relationship here. She's not half-hearted. She's not distant. She's not cold. Don't think Orpah is a heartless person. She's weeping with them. She's kissing them. It's, it's a hard thing for her to do. And to me, reading this passage, it feels like Naomi was able to convince her that a life back in Moab with child-sacrificing gods was a better place to be for her than to be where the God of Israel was working. I wonder if she was looking for an excuse to go or did it seem logical for her to stay with her own people with her own God, her own culture. Maybe she felt, well, look, you know, it's a fair point. I could get any guy I want. I don't need to go to Bethlehem to get a man there. I can get, there's a queue forming already. But I do want you to see her heart is genuinely broken here. She's weeping. This is hard for her. These people have been her family. And ultimately, it seems that she becomes convinced that she doesn't need God to build a new life. I don't need God to build a new life. Now, it's impossible for us to tell how much convincing she needed. It's impossible to tell if, if it was, she, she kind of went very quickly and was like, I, I right, well, okay, I was kind of looking for permission to go. Or whether actually what Naomi said really did change her mind. It's impossible to read into that. It's impossible to know.
And perhaps if Naomi had been less pushy, less bitter, maybe she could have made a commitment to God. In Mark 12, Jesus speaks to a scribe. He's spoken about the greatest command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second command is to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says to the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far. Maybe Orpah was not far either. Who knows? I think maybe that is where Orpah was. Maybe she wasn't very far at all from the kingdom. She wasn't very far from making a commitment to God, but she was convinced by Naomi that it wasn't worth the risk. It was too costly. It wasn't worth walking away from everything she knew to gain it. She'd already lost enough. She'd already lost a father-in-law, a brother-in-law, a husband. What a sad story that Orpah was able to listen to someone who claimed to know Christ and was convinced by looking at them and listening to them that it wasn't worth the risk. It's not worth putting my trust in Christ, not by what they're telling me. That's a really sad story, isn't it? What a sad story. And we never read of her again in Scripture. We don't know what happened. She kisses her mother, mother mother-in-law, and she goes back into the world. It's a really sad story. But what a contrast then we have to Ruth. Naomi covered up, Orpah gave up. But Ruth steps up. With all the heartbreak and all the trials, instead of getting bitter and blaming God or giving up, she seems to actually put more trust in God. The more that she's lost, the more she clings on of all the barriers that she has to stop coming to God, she has so many barriers, so many reasons to not come to God. Her culture, her upbringing, the Moabites with all the child I mean, that kind of theology, that kind of thinking, it doesn't naturally or easily bring you to a God of love and grace, who instead of demanding sacrifices, would sacrifice for us. Her circumstances are against her. She's lost so many people. She's been bereaved. It's hard. She has been left with um, poverty. No income, no support. And yet she's to believe in a God of love and a God of grace who supplies every need. Maybe it it looks like even her own mother-in-law was against her. Go back, go find a man of your own kind. Go find your own sort. I think this is a testimony to the wonderful grace and goodness of God. Please remember, absolutely no one gets to heaven by their own merit. No one gets there by themselves. It is all about the grace of God, the undeserved work of God in our lives. And he's not hindered by circumstances. Titus 3 says that he saved us not because of the work done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. It's all about him. His mercy. God delights in showing mercy. And sometimes the least likely people in the least likely set of circumstances, 
make the greatest trophies of what God can do. Because I think sometimes they are the ones who understand better than anyone else that they cannot save themselves. And our God is a God who desires to bring all people, or desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And then Ruth makes this wonderful statement. One of the most beautiful statements in all of Scripture. And while it's not the context, I've often regretted not using this on, on, uh, on, on my wedding day. I think it's a wonderful picture of committing to another person. My people is your people. Where I'm going, uh, where you're going, I'm going to go. I think it's a really nice commitment to make in the context of a wedding. But let, let's read it. And then we'll highlight five aspects of it. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to your people and to her gods return after her. But Ruth said, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And, where, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Five things I want you to see in this. Number one, it is a steadfast promise. Don't urge me. Don't try to persuade me not to go. You're stuck with me. I am committed. Our society doesn't do great with commitment anymore, especially lifelong commitment. You want to look at marriages, you'll hear people saying, oh, you know, for those three years we were together, I was really committed. You know, for, for those six months that we were together, I was really committed. And you think, oh, wow, how lucky of them. You know, because really what happens now is we talk about being in the moment. Oh, you know, we were together, but it was just, oh, you know, we just got caught up in the moment. But we don't really talk about being committed. Not in the difficult times. Because we don't measure commitment now in years, it's milliseconds. It's why so many marriages don't work. Because they don't start like this promise, no matter what, no matter what comes, no matter how much you try to urge me to go away, no matter how much you tell me you don't want me here, I am here. You're stuck with me. I'm not going anywhere. I am committed to you through thick and thin, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health. You're stuck with me. And I can almost hear Ruth saying to Naomi, like, we have been through so much together already. And if there's more to come, I'm still going to be here with you. We're going to go through it together. I, I love the Spurgeon quote. He says, by perseverance, even the snail made it to the ark. Maybe hard. It may take a long time, but I'm sticking with you. I'm sticking at it. We're going to make it. By perseverance, even the snail made it to the ark. It's a steadfast commitment. Not, not only that, but it's a humble promise. Where you go, I will go. In other words, I'm not going to dictate the terms here. I'm not telling you where to go. I'm not here to, to make orders. I'm here to follow. I'll go where you go. I'll surrender to you. You choose. I follow. 
Jesus said it to God the Father. He says, your will, not mine, be done. It's the commitment a wife makes to a husband in her vows. I will love and obey. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to go where you lead me. And it's like the church to Christ. Remember in Ephesians, Paul makes that, that comparison. The wife is like the church. The, the, the groom is like Christ. And the church also to Christ then will say, I'm not here to make the, the decisions. I'm going to follow you. As Christ loves and gave himself for her. Not only that, but it's an unashamed promise. Your people will be my people. Where you lodge, I will lodge. That's a very powerful thing that she said there. To disavow her own people and to embrace a whole new people who are going to treat her like an outsider, who are going to treat her with suspicion, attach a stigma to her. And she says, no, they're going to be my people. If that's where you're going, if that's where you're going to call home, then that's where I'm calling home. You think about it. In our culture, I think in Northern Ireland, maybe has an idea about this. You know, maybe especially growing up in the 70s and 80s, whenever there was a Protestant marrying a Catholic, and one of their families was going to just disavow and says, you can't be part of our family. We're, you're not welcome here anymore. Not if you're going to bring her. Not if you're going to bring him. And so sometimes the person has to say, right, well, your people are going to be my people now. That's a big thing. It's a hard thing. Not only that, but it's a spiritual promise, a spiritual commitment. I think this is the moment of Ruth's conversion. Ruth has turned away from her own upbringing, turned away from her gods uh, that she grew up with. Your God is going to be my God. One of the hardest barriers to faith is tradition. One of the hardest barriers to faith is tradition. Um, she has grown up in a totally different culture, a totally different ideology to where she's going now. And that's big. I've preached in Brazil and India and Croatia and Uganda and, and a couple of other countries as well. Okay, even, even if you go to Dublin or Donegal, it, it can be different because what you meet is, especially in those kind of Catholic countries, you'll have people who'll say, well, listen, my father was a Catholic. My grandfather was a Catholic. His grandfather was a Catholic. And listen, if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. Tradition is a very hard thing to break. Very hard thing to break. It's a hard master to get free from, and yet Ruth relinquishes it all for the sake of knowing the God of Israel. And last one, number five, where you die, I will die. It's a complete commitment. A complete commitment. This is not a half-hearted thing. This isn't right. Well, look, listen, love. We'll, we'll see how it pans out, and, and if it start, and if it stays good, then yes, we're all good. But first sign of difficulty, I'm moving back. I'm keeping the keys to my house in Moab. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep the door kind of open for me to get out again. I'm gonna keep a suitcase packed just in case. You know, there's a difference between being involved and being committed. A difference between being involved and committed. A pilot in the RAF in World War II was involved. The kamikaze pilots of Japan, they're committed. 
because you can be involved and dip in and dip out of something. But if you're committed, you're right in it. A cow is involved. A pig's committed. All right. A cow you can milk and not really pay too much attention. A pig, though, is committed. Gives itself over. Ruth here says, Naomi, listen to me. I am totally committed. Totally committed to you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, the Lord has brought me back empty. <clears throat> Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Why I think that speech was the moment of her conversion is because if she hadn't converted, she would have been killed in entering Bethlehem. We, we looked at this this morning. In Deuteronomy 23, they were told, Look, no Ammonite and no Moabite is allowed in the assembly of the Lord to the 10th generation. They do not belong here. They, they do child sacrifice. It's dark. You do not welcome them. And so I think Ruth is coming and saying, Look, listen, I know I'm from there, but that's not me. I, I, I want to be a child of Israel now. I want to belong to the God of Israel. Here, here's the thing. In Ephesians 2, we're reminded that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. It's not from yourself, but as a gift of God. Not by works so that anyone can boast. You see, here's the wonderful thing about God. Our failure is never final. Our failure and our sin and the times that we make mistakes and when we dig ourselves these holes, it's never final. That's never where the story ends for us. Not with God. If failure was final, none of us would be allowed back into the house of God. And yet because of what Christ has done, we are allowed to enter the places that our sin has disqualified us from. We can come to God. We can come in prayer. We can cast our cares. We can ask him for things. We can come with confidence to the place of prayer. We can come and, and rejoice in fellowship with the holy king of heaven because Christ, because of grace, because of what he has done, because of him, the, the, the place that we never should be allowed to go into is made available to us. And we are opened, it's opened up for us and we can come in. For Ruth, God's plan was only starting to take shape. For Naomi, a prodigal had, had made her way home. In the New Testament, Jesus tells us another story about a son who made a realization in a far off land. And after so many bad choices, after parting, after squandering all his money and blowing it all, 
he comes back and finds that his father was waiting for him with open arms. Listen, you could be a million steps away from God. And every decision that you have made for, for weeks or months or years, like Naomi, it was a decade long of bad decisions. But here's the thing. God is only one step away. I wonder maybe if God has been dealing with some of you and challenging you. I don't know which one of the ladies, which one of their stories is most like yours. But what I do know is that no matter how many steps you've taken away from God, it's only one step back. You turn around. You find that he's there and he's waiting with open arms. Wanting to forgive. Wanting to restore. Wanting to, to make it better. I hope you're not going to be like Orpah where you take a look around and you look at some of the Christians and you look at me and look at others and think, mm, I'm going to try a new life without God. I think I don't think I need him. Are you going to be like Naomi where we've sinned, we've made mistakes, we've, but we're just going to cover it up. We're going to pretend that it's not as bad as it really is. We're going to go through the emotions. We're going to go through the stages. We're going to look the part, but our heart's quite far from God. Or are we going to be like Ruth? Who acknowledges, okay, listen. What's in the past is in the past. But now I'm committed. It's real. It's, it's going to be different. It's going to be <laughs> take some adjustment. But I'm all in. I am all in, and so whatever's coming my way, whatever's going, I want it, I want it all. And so I'm coming, I'm leaving it all behind, and I'm going. I want what God has. It's one step. It's simply by starting with repentance. God, I am so sorry for all these things that I have done. Forgive me. Forgive me. And I want to live my life for you now. All those things that you've, you have in store for me, I want it. I'm tired of trying to do it myself. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Let's pray. And then we'll have the musicians come up and play one last song for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who is close. No matter how many steps away we've taken, you are right here, even tonight, right here, ready to hear anyone who needs to confess, anyone who needs to repent. Whether they've been faking it for a long time or maybe just now it's starting to drop. Lord, I pray that even in this moment, in the stillness and this quietness, Lord, it would be a time of repentance where we get real with God, where we stop worrying about outward religious appearances, but we get back to being about a relationship with you, a real relationship with you.
And Lord, for those who maybe feel it's been a long time since they've really enjoyed that relationship, it's been a while since they've had that time with you, that they feel that they have that ability to come, that freedom to come. Lord, I pray, help them, help us to identify those barriers and to remove those barriers. Lord, that we might leave here closer with you, sold out for you, committed to you, and ready for all that you would have for us. We ask this in your name. Amen. Glad to the musicians to come, and we're going to sing one more song. Feel free to come and speak to myself or, or, or some of the elders, deacons who are about. Um, please don't go away still not right with God. Please don't go away still not sure um, where you stand with God. Please don't go away still in chains. Which is saying, His blood breaks the chains. That's the power of God in us. And so please, let's just pray and finish your service. Heavenly Father, be with us now, we pray. And Lord, may we know the reality of what we've just been singing in our lives. Make it real, we pray.